Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's nothing wrong with having like a dream and pursuing that over a number of years. I feel like these days, so many people and media makes it seem like quick in three months, you need to have your idea get investment and then build your idea when there's nothing wrong with having a patient journey. It's actually quite beautiful. That's where a lot of the lessons are learned. Hello and welcome to season three of the Wannabe podcast, the podcast that takes you from where you are now to where you want to be in 30 minutes or less. I'm of course your host, Imriel. The response to Tori's episode was insane. Her quote, my self-worth is not my accomplishments and my accomplishments are not my self-worth is about to be framed and put on my wall as a reminder. Today's guest is Andy Ayim. Andy is the co-founder of Mixtape Madness and former MD at Backstage Capital. Andy, by his own admission, has a portfolio career occupying the roles of management consultant, product manager, business analyst at companies like Ernst & Young, Elixir, Worldverse and Investec Bank. The Financial Times named Andy as one of its top 10 most influential BAME tech leaders. In today's episode, Andy shares what it means to have a portfolio career, the difference between an angel investor and a venture capitalist, He breaks down the different types of funding founders can tap into and the two most important questions you have to nail to secure funding. Notebooks at the ready. Who did you want to be before you became who you are today and why? Ooh, that's a great question. So I really looked up to growing up um, in music, Bob Marley and Michael Jackson. Bob Marley, because I think my dad played a lot of him in the house and when you listen to the music, you start listening to the words. When you listen to the words, you start learning more about why that person's saying those words. And Bob Marley like, was, was a bit of an activist and his language that he used in his words were quite poetic and sharing like, things like Africa Unite, you know, and just talking about the injustices that people were going on at that time. Um, and he was able to unite people through his music. So him as a person was just very inspirational. And I remember feeling like I wish... The one thing I wish is that I could have gone to a concert and experienced him in person. And Michael Jackson, for similar similar reasons, like his music was so influential growing up. Like I used to love dancing growing up. I used to look up to a lot of people in business and in tech, but I couldn't identify with them. And, you know, I was looking up at people like Bill Gates and then it was Steve Jobs. Then it was Mark Zuckerberg, but all of them were middle class and white and they grew up in, with a different privilege than I did. So my relationship with privilege and oppression was different to them. So I always felt like I wanted to be in that arena, but I couldn't identify with the people I saw in those spaces. So growing up, I used to really question, is there space for me in those spaces since I can't see anyone like me in those spaces? You know, so it was interesting. Yeah. Like, I wanted to grow up to be kind of like them, but I didn't really identify with them. So I used to question, almost like that imposter syndrome that I had to get over. Actually, is there space for me up there to do that kind of work in tech? and in startup land or actually like do I really belong there and I've gone on this journey over the next the last 10 years and really exploring and discovering that and undressing that and unpacking that 
Yeah, I mean, your career has been varied, to say the least, and it's been like tremendously successful in so many ways and in so many different, I guess, areas within tech. What is it about what they were doing that you really admired? The thing that really inspired me about technology and these leaders is that they were literally shaping the world. It was incredible for me to feel like that there's someone in California on the West Coast that's created Microsoft and this computer and I'm all the way here in Tottenham on the internet accessing what they've created all the way here in Tottenham and they have no idea that I exist but I'm using their software and there's millions of other people in the world that are using it too and I just saw the power of software and technology and it was just reinforced more and more as like as we got mobile phones and the Nokia 3310s and we're playing Snake to R&B ringtones on the phone to even like getting a smartphone and just seeing that technology really shaping how we interact with other humans and how we interact at home and at work was just incredible for me. And I realized at a young age that technology was shaping the world. I wanted to be part of that because I saw not only the influence that technology had and the importance mm-hmm. on the world, but I also saw the wealth creation opportunity there in that I yeah. saw that there were people that were creating this technology and doing well for themselves were not only making themselves rich, but were making other people wealthier as a result of that. So I saw actually it's a route for you to get wealth and be able to do good. So yeah, it really excited me and attracted me because of that. Not many people really understand that there's a spectrum between oppression and inequality and on the other side, privilege. And sometimes the more privileged you are, you don't realize it, but actually it impacts someone else in a negative way. And that's oppression. Within the technology industry, there's a, a network of people that invest in these companies called venture capitalists. I was reading and researching and finding out stats like in America where 1% of VC money goes to black founders and less than 0.2% went to black women. And I knew that black people had the potential to grow and build great companies too. We're not disadvantaged in that area. So why are we getting less access to the capital and to the opportunity? And that just didn't sit right with me. So that's when I started really working in this space and working with investors and working with startups to really change that and to funnel more access to that opportunity and to that money to other people that look like me because we deserve an equal opportunity to succeed just like our white middle-class counterparts. Mm -hmm. No, that's really admirable. You've always been like a great source of knowledge, information. You're definitely someone that I guess embodies the kind of paying it forward. You're not a gatekeeper in that way. And that's really, really lovely to have in the community and for you to be so active and, you know, just so helpful to so many of us who I guess are building businesses, building brands. Some of us aren't necessarily like even seeking out VC money or, you know, startup capital via investors, but the knowledge that you share is just so valuable across the board and is accessible. So, you know, you are definitely being the change that you wanted to see in the world, for sure. So well done on that. I guess I want to know, just because you were talking about how excited you were by software and technology, what your first idea was. (laughs) So I'll I'll share two stories. One of um, how I fed my curiosity when I was younger, slightly illegal, um, and then I'll share my first idea. <laughs> so growing up in Tottenham, I lived in an area called Northumberland Park. And my brother and a few friends and I used to walk about 25 minutes or 20 minutes to an area called Tottenham Hill. There used to be a technology park, which has been converted into a school now. And that technology park was called Techno Park. And I thought at the time it was very underutilized. And I used to basically go there after 6 p.m. and break in 
not harm oh anything, God. not steal anything, but I would literally use their computers so that I could download games on what we call like a SNES emulator. So emulating the SNES console, because I couldn't afford that that stuff growing up, right? So I had to download these games and I'd literally play games and basically feed my curiosity when it comes to technology mm-hmm. in this techno park until I got a computer at home. But I was willing at that age to go to such far extents to feed my curiosity and feed this thirst for technology. And it wasn't the right thing to do looking back, but I understood looking back why I did it. Now, the first idea, before you judge me on that, the first <laughs> idea I had um, was an idea called Suffirm, and it stood for Self-Affirm. It was like a university project that turned into an actual project that could have became a business. But the idea at the time was that myself and two friends of mine, Dennis and Abdul, saw this opportunity where we believed that entrepreneurship skills were key, actually, and had a lot of transferable overlap with employability skills. So we would Mm -hmm. go into universities, into church groups, into council groups, into colleges, and we would teach people how to leverage their entrepreneurial skill set for employment. And we were training people using these workshops. And sometimes there'll be examples of anything basic from like setting up a lemonade stand and understanding the sales and distribution and supply chain aspects of doing that and how that's important and what careers that could lead to, like what is a career in procurement or supply chain. And other times it was taking like illegal examples like being a drug dealer and understanding the economics of the risk of buying low and selling high, the risk of return, and taking those transferable skills and saying, let's sacrifice this illegal work that people do on the roads and selling drugs and actually how what does that look like as a career in the city or within this job and at the end of the day we're just explaining that the basic economics are totally different because you risk much less working a career in the city but the the probability of you earning much more money is a lot higher so there we're converting people and really like convincing people about why they should leverage the same skills that they have in more legitimate means so that was kind of the first business that we set up and Mm. funny enough looking back now the reason we stepped away from that was because we felt at the time as if a little bit like imposter syndrome we were saying to ourselves actually we haven't got on these careers ourselves, even though we think this formula works yeah let's get some skin in the game and get some experience actually working in jobs ourselves. and then like one of the friends went to like morgan stanley this investment bank another one went to twitter and i went to ernst and young so we actually ended up in decent careers which shows that we knew what we were doing but looking back, we could have absolutely continued that company. We didn't have to go and work to feel like that, you know. But at the time, I guess it was just that feeling of, do I belong here again? Like, can I be my most authentic self in selling this if I haven't experienced it? Yeah, for sure. I mean, hearing you describe it sounds a lot like, very. there's a lot of similarities in what you're doing now. I guess to kind of, what are you doing now, actually? Because I feel like every time we speak, you're doing something slightly different. Um, so the last thing I knew about, actually, was you being the MD of Backstage. I'm no longer the MD of Backstage. Funny story, actually, that many people probably don't know, is that I recorded a podcast series in 2016. Yeah. And you were helping me with, like, getting it published and getting out there, and I never released a single episode of that series. Yeah. <laughs> and one of the people that I interviewed as part of that series was a lady called Arlen Hamilton, who is the founder of Backstage Capital. And I ended up not releasing that, but having a great relationship with her off the back of that podcast, which led to her hiring me as the MD of Backstage Capital. So it's so funny and so, how things work out full circle. Like it started with that, that podcast episode and it led to actually a great job opportunity, which I've, I've obviously did all right in. And now, today, two days a week, I run the Angel Investing School, 
which teaches anyone from anywhere how to get started with investing into startups with as little as £5,000 and is taught every week by an experienced angel investor who teaches you lessons from what they know. And then three days a week, I freelance as a product coach. So um, I'm working with a massive organization in Switzerland and I've created a book for them on how to do what we call customer discovery and work in agile. And now I'm actually training a lot of their teams on like how to set up product teams and how to make it work within their teams. No, I feel that actually. I think that's just that's just real <laughs> for for many people that there is, I guess, er- everyone, your career. Yeah, wearing a lot of hats, utilizing all of the different skills that we have. Because I guess I'm a bit like you. I've got three days doing something else, loosely related to what I do marketing wise. It's more. Um, it's just a different industry. I'm doing IT marketing three days and I do two days for Content is Queen. And love that name, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, so yeah, Content is Queen was about to gear up for some like big changes. We were finally building that studio. I talked to you about how many, like two years ago, a year ago. And so we were close, like almost signed the lease. Like the studio is bought, like the booth is bought it's in the building can't do anything coronavirus locked us down so it's definitely hard to resist the urge of trying to just kind of jump on and do all of the things but much like you I think I'm definitely thinking like okay well at the end of this I still need to have a business it still needs to feel future it needs to be future proofed in order to do that there needs to be planning there needs to be a strategy there needs to be a business plan there needs to be a plan for how money is coming in and who the customer is and doing all of that kind of background work has become so necessary and I think yeah you're absolutely right that you know it's very 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 difficult to resist opportunities today to think about what the trade-off will be in the future I love that like you've been so committed and disciplined and focused on this dream for over a year and a year and a half and two years and I think it's something that as a society we need to talk about more there's nothing wrong with having like a dream and pursuing that over a number of years I feel like these days so many people and media makes it seem like quick in three months you need to have your idea get investment and then build your idea when there's nothing wrong with having a patient journey. It's actually quite beautiful. That's where a lot of the lessons are learned. You know, you go through so much pain, you learn so much along that journey and it validates that you really want it. And like you say, there's always going to be temptations to do like that masterclass or to do, which you can do because you've got the skill set, the actual domain of expertise to do it. But at the same time, if you do that, it takes you away from, from this journey that you're on. Yeah. It's definitely been a long time coming, but yeah, and I mean, I'm we're still we're still very committed to making it happen when it's safe to do so. But I do want to touch on, I guess, investing because that's been somewhat a lot of your content. More, I guess, in the last few months has been on that. You run the Angel Investing School for, I guess, people listening who are probably still in the side hustle phase or a bit like me where we're doing three days and two days or those two days happen to be the weekends you know we're still building and plodding along and we know what we're trying to build hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter that's why i teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create pretty litter its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80 percent less than clay litter Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. What are the key signs that you're, you need investment, should take investment? And I guess, you know, there's a huge difference between an angel and a VC generally. So what are those if we take a step back and zoom out a little bit, like what we're talking about really here is working capital. Like I need some money right now to plug a gap in my business to now enable me to continue to grow. And there's various different sources of where that money could come from, depending on what type of business you are and what stage your business is at. For example, if I was an e-commerce business that sold almond milk online, yeah, and I had 60-day payment terms of Waitrose, and I'm selling off the shelves in Waitrose, but because it takes them 60 days to pay me, I've got a gap between when I'm going to get my money from them and when I'm able to pay to produce more of this milk to sell to users. So I might mm-hmm. go and take like something called purchase order financing, which says, look, I've got this contract as proof that they're going to take 10,000 shipment of 1,000 milk orders from me and they have done for the last six months. So why don't you lend to me based on the fact that I have this purchase order? So that's a version of financing, for example, that is suitable for that business. Whereas a lot of the time when you have a side hustle and you're just getting started out, what you're really saying is I've got an idea that has got potential. I want to take on some money to provide me with working capital to allow me to focus on building my team and my idea over a set period of time, like 12 months or 18 months. Angel investors are usually the investors that you go to first because they are willing to invest in your business and take on that high risk because most businesses, over 90% of new businesses, actually fell within the first year. So angel investors are literally just individuals that have some money and they're willing to invest in exchange for some equity in your company. Okay, and equity meaning some shares in your company. So I can yeah. say like to you today that actually I want to invest £10,000 into your company, but I want 10% equity for that. And you may push back and say 10% is way too much. And I think my company is worth a lot more than that. And then we have to negotiate to what the right level is of equity for that £10,000 that I'm willing to invest. Now, the thing is, as soon as you take on an investor like me as an angel investor, what you're saying to me and the way I'm treating you is you're one of 10 companies that I've invested in. I'm going to make my money and my return if there's a what we call a liquidation event. And a liquidation event is when you get bought by a bigger company. So a bigger company comes and buys Content is Queen, but they're buying it at a higher price than I invested in. So the difference is what we share in terms of I'll get 10% of the proceeds, you get the 90%. So that's one way we make money. And the second way that the investor can make money is if Content is Queen grows to a level where actually now we float it on the stock market. So it goes on to, let's say, the FTSE 250 or the FTSE 100 or the alternative investment market. And now that it's floated, what we've done is we've said we're selling our shares to the public at a higher price. So the public are buying your shares. And again, me and you will share the proceeds. I'll get my 10% you'd get your 90%. 
So when you take on an investor, you recognize that, that that's the way that the investor makes their money. So it's mm-hmm. your job to grow the company to a scale and to a size where those returns are possible for the investor. And it's important for you to understand that before you take on an investor, because you'll be thinking if you don't understand that, why is the investor pushing me so much to grow? But the reason the investor is pushing you so much to grow quickly is because they want to make that return within a certain time frame, be it five, seven, ten years. When you take on investment, a lot of the times it can impact and influence your strategy because now the investor is trying to motivate you and push you to grow because that's how they make their return. And then when you take on venture capital, it works in a very similar fashion, but this time it's a company that's investing into you, not just an individual, but they expect the same type of returns in the same type of ways. Yeah, I hear VCs are slightly more sharkish. (laughs) Is that true? It's true, but it's true because of the incentive structure of that business. So as an individual, I can actually do what I want. If I really get along with you, I might not push you because I might be like, you know what? I gave her that money partly just because I liked her and I believed in her and I want her to do well. And if I make a return, that's nice. But if I don't, I'm actually okay with that. Whereas with a VC, that is not optional. So the VC, the management in a VC is called a general partnership. They're called GPs. So Arlen, for Mm -hmm. example, is the GP at Backstage Capital. But then she has to go fundraise from what we call limited partners. So these could be like endowment funds from universities. They could be pension funds. They could be really big corporates. We call them institutional investors. And they will commit money to your fund and say, all right, as a general partner, we believe that you're going to make a return for us in the next X number of years, let's say 10 years. When you take on that responsibility as a fund, you're saying, I've just raised 100 million of other people's money. And because I'm investing that money into you, content is queen, I need you and the rest of my portfolio to make that return for me. So I need you, even though I've invested 100 million, I need all of you combined to make me, let's say, 1 billion, that 10x return so that I can pay back the people that I raised money from and I can convince other investors to invest in my next fund, which is going to be much bigger because of this track record that I've now built up. And the reason it's sharkish is because usually, on average, VCs are failing business models. A lot of them are underperforming. A lot of them invest in companies that don't do well enough to make them a return. You know, the VCs that actually do well, one third of their portfolio does really well and makes them a return. One third Mm -hmm. kind of breaks even, which is a terrible result for them. They're not in the business of breaking even. And then one third get killed or stop running their business. And some VCs, not all, focus a lot more on their winners. So a lot of the people that are doing mediocre or not really like looking like they're going to make a return, they may not put your, their resources towards those portfolio companies. They may be focused much more on the winners. Not all VCs are like that. Great VCs are focused on their whole portfolio. Wow. One, I had no idea that that's how that worked behind the scenes. And I've watched quite a lot of startup TV. So thank you for breaking that down. What is it that makes it so much more difficult for, you know, black and brown businesses, black businesses in particular, to access funding? It relates to that question, that that definition of diversity and inclusion. Like a lot of people bundle the words together like it means the same thing when it doesn't. Like diversity Mm. is really about bringing people from different backgrounds to the table. Inclusion is about having their voices heard and acted upon. And actually at the core of inclusion is really about empathy. And the problem is like when you hear these stories of black founders, you know, going to pitch like there's a hair company that we invested in last year called Afrocentrics and pitch to sometimes like middle class white investors and they're getting judged you know like oh you're pregnant are you sure you can run the company or 
black hair is that really a big market and there's all these questions that the investors would ask and these doubts that they'll throw on that show that they don't empathize with this founder and not only that they're not willing to go and fill their knowledge gaps like mm. to understand black hair all it takes is for you to speak to five random black people and just to get their opinion on black hair and ask them about their experiences in washing hair and conditioning and getting their hair cut but a lot of them in the room would make biased decisions and choose not to invest because it's something they can't relate to or understand and that's wrong and that's what was happening a lot in vc pattern matching where people were forming patterns off the existing and historical data that they knew which is often from mm-hmm. closed networks and people that looked like them you know so oh you worked at mckinsey as well oh so did i oh that's interesting okay let's talk oh you went to oxford university so did i okay let's talk and slowly you're getting warm introductions from people in your networks but your networks are closed so the question is how can you get those vcs to be more empathetic and open up and to really invest in these farmers because they believe in them but then on the other side of that question is what I'm doing, which is more around, actually, how can I just build my own train tracks rather than rely on the existing train tracks? You know, so in the angel investing school, I'm training up new people to become angel investors and I'm sharing with them a lot of black founders that are raising. So as a consequence yeah. of that, they're going to be investing in a lot more black founders and I'm chipping away at the problem directly. So rather than me convincing people with money to give money to black founders actually i can invest directly myself and train up other people who then go on and invest into black founders too which is a long game and it's going to take time but that's what i've started chipping away at and there's other great people in the ecosystem doing the same thing like andy davis for example who was one of my colleagues at backstage capital and he's now an angel investor under the atomical angel program and he's doing the same kind of stuff he's doing events where he's inviting founders to have question and answers you know, a Q&A session so that they can demystify a lot of the language and understand the process a lot more. We held like an event last month where we invited people that wanted to break into VC so that they can have an open question and answer session and understand the process and how to break into VC. And we're trying to do as much as we can to really democratize access to the knowledge and information, which is the first step, and then the networks and then the access to the capital. The other side where I see founders failing sometimes is that there's two questions that really trip them up. Why now? in terms of why are you starting this business now? Sometimes the honest answer is, I hated the job that I had and I just needed a new job. But instead, Mm. I think entrepreneurship is going to be a more attractive route, so I'm going to be an entrepreneur. That's a bad answer. But that's the truth for some people. The other answer I hear sometimes is, like, I want to experience being an entrepreneur. And then the third thing sometimes is that someone's trying to start a software startup, but they can't code. And that's okay if you can inspire someone that can code to join you. If you can't, you need to learn to code or you're not the right person to solve that problem. People find it hard to accept that one because that one makes it sound like, why can't I start on this journey? But the truth is, if you're building a business and you don't possess the core competent skill set in order to build that business, you need to partner with someone that does or you're not well suited to start that business because your competitors that do are going to be able to move at a quicker rate than you because they possess that skill and they're not outsourcing it to someone when it's core to their, their company's existence. And people mm-hmm. don't accept that one either, but that's a really important one. You know, if I want to build an app and I'm not willing to learn how to develop and engineer, I need to inspire someone who can to join me along this journey or I'm not well suited to solve that problem. Because at the beginning, what we're actually doing is we're in the business of solving problems for customers. So really, we should be speaking to customers early and often to understand what their problem is and understand how we can solve that problem. You know, and if we can solve that problem without tech, because we're not technical ourselves, that's even better. 
you know. So with the angel investing school, I can't code. I can't write a line of code. So I'm not trying to build something with code. I've just built something that I can deliver given my core skill set and the access to the networks that I have. You know, and sometimes we need to think creatively like that. You know, like how can we solve problems given the skill set we have and the network that we have? Yeah. So finally, what is the best advice you've ever received and what is the worst advice you've ever received? Typical bad advice that I've received and many founders are getting told by VCs is that your market is not big enough. That's too niche a market. And it's such a stupid thing to say, because when you start off a business, your business is full of all sorts of assumptions that you're validating constantly. And you're not in the business of being a mind reader. You're not a psychic. You're not saying that, oh, I'm growing in this massive market, which is really appealing to investors because you're not even caring about that. You're focused on solving a problem. And if we look at the most ambitious founders in history, all of them have outgrown their initial market. You know, Airbnb Mm -hmm. started off with like leasing people's houses, which was strange. And at the time was taboo because it was like, I'm going to trust a stranger to live in my house. That's not right. But now they've outgrown that. That's become a norm. And they've even grown to providing experiences. Amazon Mm -hmm. started off as a bookstore. Today, they make a lot of their revenue from selling servers in their AWS business. But they've also got physical businesses like Echo and like Kindle. At the beginning, there was no idea that Amazon were going to grow in that direction. You know, so there's so many great businesses today that we held who operate in all sorts of different industries and markets, but didn't start off there. So why are we judging founders today by the initial markets that they're starting off in? If they're really ambitious and they they can execute, they're going to outgrow those opportunities and grow into new opportunities. That's a bad piece of advice. You know, one of the best pieces of advice that I received is that ideas are overrated and execution is undervalued. It's very easy to generate ideas. Like we can all generate ideas in our sleep. It's very difficult to move from an idea to actually achieving revenue and getting consistent sales for your business to execute on that idea and turn it into an actual thing. And it's where majority of us fall, you know? Like we major on minor things that don't matter. Like, ooh, that's a nice logo. Ooh, that's a nice Instagram page. But we don't major in sales in actually selling your product into places that are buying it and actually providing enough revenue where I can hire my first, second, fifth member of staff. So we major on minor things and executions, highly undervalued ideas are overrated. Brilliant. Thank you so much. This was insightful. I feel like I was just here to just like pick your brains and I really enjoyed it. So thank you. <laughs> oh, good, good. I hope your audience enjoys it too. Like I've enjoyed it. A huge thank you to Andy for sharing this invaluable knowledge with us. If you're interested in breaking into a new career, download his ebook by the same name at andyim.com. While you're there, you can learn more about his angel investing school and follow Andy on Instagram, where he generously shares a wealth of knowledge for founders, side hustlers and budding investors. For updates on Wannabe, follow Content is Queen on Twitter at Content is QN and Instagram at Content is Queen HQ. If you're enjoying this podcast, please do leave a review on Apple Podcasts and share it with your friends via Insta stories. We've pulled some amazing quotes from this episode, which you can reshare via Instagram and Twitter. To get extended show notes listing any of the tools and resources we've talked about on this episode, visit wannabepodcast.com. This podcast is proudly a Content is Queen production. It has been lovingly edited and put together by Ellie Clifford. Thank you for listening and until next time. Bye.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 